Today's podcast is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash chapters. There you'll find over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to Chapters, the podcast where we hear the stories of readers' lives through the books that have meant the most to them. I'm Mary Mahoney, and today I'm talking with Melanie Newport. Melanie Newport is an assistant professor of history at the University of Connecticut at its Hartford campus. Originally hailing from Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Tacoma, Washington, she is currently working on a book called Community of the Condemned, Chicago and the Transformation of the American Jail. On today's episode, Melanie shares stories about reading books as a child that allowed her to imagine herself into the past, from Little House on the Prairie to the American Girl series. While pursuing a career in history, Melanie has had to rethink her reading. Specifically, how could she navigate reading disturbing accounts in her archival research into the history of Chicago's jails and simultaneously turn to books as an escape? From Little House on the Prairie to Reading the Archive, this is Melanie's story. Well, thank you for being on the show. I really appreciate you taking this time out in this spacious regional faculty office to talk to me. Um, So I want to start by sort of just asking the question I ask everyone, which is, what's your earliest memory of reading? But maybe you can also tell us where you're from and where you grew up and that kind of thing. Yeah, so um, I'm from, I'm originally from Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, I grew up in a trailer park uh, in the south side of Tulsa. Uh, And I would say the probably earliest memory of reading would be like Richard Scarry books. Um, where the animals were like doing stuff in the city, hmm. and I would say like the earliest stories that I wrote involved animals doing stuff, <laughs> which is <laughs> that's the very very early early reading. So you were writing stories at a young age based on what you were reading, or yeah, I would say that's like the the red thread probably <laughs> of my story as a reader would be that I was always kind of inspired by what I was reading to write something of my of my own and so my aunt still likes to brag to me that she has like the first thing I ever published which are like these little stories um, <laughs> that I you know printer paper that I stapled together and wrote about Aww. these little like fables about animals so were you talking about animals in cities even if you had no clue what a city was at that young age I don't think they were necessarily in cities, but it was definitely, there was always some kind of um, moral aspect, I think, or something that the animals learned at the end. Um, But that would have been when I was like five or six, Hmm. I think. So were your parents reading to you at that age? Do you remember like how you started off as a reader? Um, My brother taught me how to read secretly. Hmm. He was... He was assigned, he was in some gifted program, and he was assigned to read to somebody every night. Hmm. And so my parents had him read to me. And in the process of that, he taught me to read when I was about four. And my parents didn't know <laughs> until I think like my grandfather was reading me like Dr. Seuss or something. And as the story goes, he was kind of skipping some words. They're not getting it quite right. And um, I corrected him. <laughs> Like, no, Papa, that's not how it goes. <laughs> and then I, like, picked up and started reading, and everybody's kind of like, wait, Where did what? this come from? Yeah, so um, my brother gets all the credit for that. Hmm. So did you grow up in a family of readers, or, I mean, your brother was a reader. Did your parents like to read? Um, my parents definitely were more, I think they, we had, like, paperbacks around the house, so, like, Dad was reading, it's so gendered in the 80s, like, Dad was reading Tom Clancy, <laughs> Mom was reading Danielle Steele. Um, I would say probably the, the biggest reader in my life was my great-grandmother, uh, who, when we moved to, from Oklahoma to Washington State, when I was, like, eight, as soon as I rolled in, she had checked out a stack of books for me from the library. Um, which the only one I remember in the stack was like the pain and the great one, hmm. um, which I, th- I think that's a, is that a Judy Bloom? I can't remember, but it's about like a, 
an older sister and a pest kind of brother, but like she was, she was totally ready to go. And she had worked in school libraries um, as her job. And so she was the one who was like plugged into good bookstores and was providing me with books hmm. when it became identified that I was like a good reader. Um, and did you talk to her about what you were reading or was she just giving you the books? That's hard to remember. Um, I know that as I got older, I think we talked about it, but mm. she was definitely, like, I think she just wanted to make sure that I kept reading and that I had things that I liked. Mm. So we definitely went to the library together a fair bunch. What were the first books that you remember being really important to you in your life? Um, I was definitely a little house reader, which seems to be a common theme on your show. <laughs> um, so the, the I went really hard for pioneers. I was like very obsessed with uh, pretending to be a pioneer as a result of the books. What shape would that take? Um, so we had this kind of sunroom, was what it was called in our house, and I would just like play up there like every night pretending, like acting out the little house stories with like I wouldn't use my own dolls I would use my mom's dolls because they were like old (laughs) had more of the look I was going for for my little house aesthetic yeah um so yeah it was I was really into into that to the extent that when I was like 10 I went back to Oklahoma for the summer and was like grandpa you need to take me to museums and historic sites so that we can I need to do research so I can write stories for pioneers and so like this poor guy like Oklahoma in the summer is miserable so it's like 90 degrees and he's taking me to Fort Sill which is (laughs) in the middle of nowhere to see like Geronimo's grave so I could write a story about it and I didn't end up writing a story about like pioneers really I ended up because I've been like going through all the family pictures I ended up writing stories about like a girl who would have lived in their house in the 70s (laughs) so that was kind of like how I made the bridge from pioneers into more modern stuff was like this weird summer doing research as a family research yeah but that same summer I was also reading American Girl books oh boy yeah so for me Take me through it. So you were like Generation 1 American Girls, I'm assuming. So the original five of Addie, Samantha, Felicity, Kirsten, Molly. Yes. And Addie actually had, I think, maybe just been introduced right. when I found out or was introduced after. I think when I actually, when I got my first book, which came from my great-grandma, uh, which was Meet Molly, um, there were only four. Yeah, I think so. So, yeah, Yeah. that was uh, fairly early. And I would say, like, it seems like kids now get into them, like, at a much younger age. I was, like, eight or nine. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So did were you immediately into those books when you read them? Had you already been on the journey of doing your family research, writing stories like that summer? Um, It was all kind of happening contemporaneously. I would say, I, I don't know how... I mean, I'm sure my great-grandma must have gone to the bookstore and said, like, I need a book for, like, a nine-year-old. You know, what should I get? Um, But it definitely fit with that, like, kind of interest (laughs) in historical fiction that I had as a kid. Um, So, yeah, I was instantly hooked. It's helped by the fact that they're formulaic, which makes them really readable, which makes you really confident as a reader. Mm -hmm. And they had those great little bits at the back that were like the historical explanation Mm -hmm. which um was great because if you think about it like as a as a child reading you know these five sets of books you're essentially doing the american history survey (laughs) which i think is underappreciated in terms of like giving you a sense of familiarity when you get into a like a high school history class like, you kind of already know You're the like, big oh, pieces yeah. of the narrative. World War II, that's Mali territory. Yeah, et right. cetera. But what, I guess, broadly, what 
So you had an interest in history, it seems like, from the beginning yeah. with Little House on the Prairie and then American Girl. Like, what was it about historical fiction that so captured your imagination? Like, what is it about the past? I think I was kind of a rigid thinker, and so I didn't have a whole lot of patience for, like, fantasy or fairy tales. Like, I liked it to be rooted in some kind of a reality, mm-hmm. and so that always made sense to me that people lived in the past and they lived in ways that were different to us. Mm. Um, And I think, you know, probably for the time, I'm I'm kind of speculating, but, like, with the ways in which, like, social history was coming into, was impacting public history during the 90s, um, like, going to a pioneer museum that had all of the doodads of pioneer life was just extremely awe-inspiring to me to know that, like, people had to turn their own butter. And so I think, like, American Girls definitely hooked into that because, especially because of the whole material culture of the dolls. Yeah. Which you could actually own these little (laughs) miniature-sized artifacts, like a a radio that you put batteries in and play old radio shows. I mean, that was... Did you have that? Did you have a doll? Did you have the... I had the Molly doll um, okay. because I just never quite got over her. Um, but because I think also because they sell it kind of with these different personalities. Yeah. For the, the book characters. Um, and that's been a thing on this show where people I've spoken to for whom the books have been important seem to identify with a particular American girl. And not only that, but sort of cast dispersions on people who identify with different American girls. Mm-hmm. My friend was a Felicity. Um, you know, because I was blonde, Kirsten would have been obvious, you know, or Scandinavian descended, but I hated how stoic she was. <laughs> that didn't appeal to me. My mom wanted me to be a Samantha, which I think wow. appealed to her more kind of like romantic Danielle Steele <laughs> tendencies. Um, but Molly, I liked, you know, because her stuff was fairly simple and uh, she was spunky and straightforward. Yeah. Hmm. And I, I, for some reason, I was just like really caught up, and there was some kind of romance to me about, you know, like the rationing. Was <laughs> were you growing around the Victory Garden at the time? Oh and my gosh! Taking well, it to that place. So then they had right the other American Girl books, which were like the recipe books. Oh yeah. Um, which I had absolutely no nobody in my house really cooked, but reading. Uh, like into kind of all of the other books that would describe either like the different historical elements was it was a gateway drug for me I think in terms of so you would read up read the recipe books even with no intention of cooking those things it was just part of like getting into the yeah mindset I I had never heard of toad in a hole and then that was one of the molly recipes and like oh my god well now I have to, like, imagine the great ways I could be eating eggs like people in the past. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, I would say that was... Um, hmm. And do you think that reading the recipes does something different for you than holding the doll? Or even, like, you could also buy the clothes. Like, you could dress like Molly. Yeah, I never really did the, like, cosplay element, but that's part of it because it's so expensive. Yeah, I think, like, me too. Yeah. Um... The dolls were presented, you know, particularly like coming from a more working class background and my best friend also, who also had a doll, it was like the doll was just like, our parents couldn't believe they were paying $82, I think was the price for a toy. That was shocking to them. And so like the fact to even get the doll was just like this major event with months and months of asking and build up. Um, but ultimately I think because it was tied to books easier to justify yeah yeah and then did you go on and read all of the books oh yeah it, like it, it, cover to cover all of them always in order I can't read things Me out of order it's the chronology thing I think but um And it's such, like you're saying, a seductive series, because even though the stories are all different, the narrative is the same. Mm -hmm. The tropes are all the same. And, like, Happy Birthday Molly isn't really wildly different from Happy Birthday 
Samantha. I mean, right. Yeah, but which is actually, I think, useful for teaching the history that's in those books because if you have a kind of narrative that shows that, like, well, okay, you know, hypothetically, you could say that this shows the ways in which girls' lives are somewhat, there's a lot of continuities mm-hmm. over time, then you can actually see the way that context shapes what they can or can't do in mm-hmm. those different situations that they run into where they get to save the day. Um, so I think that's I think that's really useful, especially when if you were like myself, who is kind of a Richard ordered <laughs> kind of thinker, those books made just an extreme amount of sense to me. Hmm. And then in your life as a reader, so I'm curious, like, so you've become a historian as an adult. What role did those books play in you becoming a historian? I think in teaching a historical mindset and maybe approaching projects with historical tools. Um, so I don't know if it's like corny to talk about it now because everybody's reading it and talking about it, but like The Handmaid's Tale was probably like the, the college version hmm. of that for me. So in high school, like a teacher recommended that book to me um, I think because I fell in with a group of friends that she believed was too conservative and and so when I asked her for like whoa, what whoa, should whoa, I back this? up yeah what happened well that's that's the long and the short of it but like I think she was she was maybe like saw an opening for to subvert that a little bit mm-hmm. when I asked her for some reading recommendations I can't remember what the other ones I think there was a third one but the um she recommended The Mists of Avalon which again like I'm not a huge fantasy person but dystopia uh, is not that far afield from historical fiction I think it's kind of maybe just you know a step step away from that and so when I was in college some professor assigned a Margaret Atwood short story and I went up and I was like um you know okay so like we could write a paper on this short story or could I write a paper on this book that I've read by her that I really like and this is a community college and the professor was like what you want to do more work (laughs) but that was getting into you know essentially I needed that kind of like history at the end like the American Girl Dolls books Mm -hmm. to like actually make sense of that book and so going to do a research paper where I learned about the moral majority and Phyllis Schlafly um, that in some ways I had to like write that little piece for myself so that I could have the context to understand hmm. that piece of fiction from the 80s um, as an adult and that was really the start of becoming like obsessed with history in college and realizing that I was turning every project into a history project. Hmm. For our chapter's listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. If you visit audible.com and sign up for a free 30-day trial, you can download an audiobook for free. Why not check out The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, a book Melanie read at the suggestion of a teacher? Maybe you've seen the recent adaptation on Hulu, But jump on Audible and you can listen to Claire Danes read you Margaret Atwood's now classic book. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash chapters. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash chapters for your free audiobook. Now, let's get back to the show. So I want to go back because we've skipped a big chunk of your life. But before we go back, um, while we're thinking about American Girl still... Mm -hmm. Thinking about the history of American Girl itself, it's written in Pleasant Company is founded in 1986. Those books are written in the next couple of years, so it's really a project of the 80s, early 90s. What do you make of like the times? Do you think that the books at all speak to the times in which they were created? I mean, certainly. Let's see, I did it. In terms of um, women's history, like just having this rapid, rapid rise, like, in terms of, you know, like, the ways in which, basically, from almost, you know, if you'd gone to a higher, you know, history department in the 1970s, you would have been lucky to find any kind of class on women's history, right? Those were all extremely developmental. So, the fact that within, kind of, 
you know, the same decade that you're seeing, like, women's history really develop as a field, right? We're seeing all those, like, kind of original, like, great books that are pioneering works, and then within 10 years, you have a children's series that's giving women's history to kids, essentially, because there's always a mom or a grandmother yeah. in those books. What I find amazing is that, for me, when I look back on it, it so altered my... It gave me such a new a worldview that was just my ground zero that would not have been for historians who have taught me. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, like to see a woman or a girl at the center of a history was something that felt very normal to me because I read American Girl as a child. Like, it was normal to see the focus of a historical work, historical fiction, be a woman, be a girl. And then for, in the 1970s, like, that was such a revolutionary thing, to write something like A Midwife's Tale or something like that on a woman and have that be the center of the history. So that's why I think about it in some ways. It's like, wow, the woman is at the center of the story, and that's not ridiculous to me. But it's you have to check your. I have to check myself sometimes. Like, wow, this is actually like a really big deal. Yeah, which I think that's a way. You know, just based on like the people that I know, who I think who have kind of similar origin stories in being a historian in terms of, of reading the American Girl books. I, I think about the ways in which it probably moved the field, not just women's history, but the field as a whole, like ahead a lot faster, because it, it's so hard to get changes to like public school history curriculum into textbooks and stuff it takes forever for the the stuff we're doing to trickle down and yet here you have this pipeline <laughs> that kids are just chomping at the bit to to get into um so i think in that way i, I would estimate that it changed the starting point not just for like women's history but for social history or cultural history which was developing in the moment you know that I would have been reading those books Mm -hmm. again it seems totally natural that you would read the little bit at the end of the book that describes what it's like to live in 1940s America at the same time in which they're having fights at the AHA or the OAH about um you know, whether his cultural history is going to destroy the field. Like, as a generation of historians who didn't experience that, like, I think it does kind of give you a yeah an in in terms of not having some of the same fears or assumptions about what social or cultural history would do to the field. Right, yeah. Hmm. So I don't want to miss this whole chunk of your life that you sort of jumped over, but... Oh, yeah. And you're, you jumped right to college, but we left you off at, like, nine years old, reading American yeah. Girl. So what comes next for you? What's going on in your life? What are you reading? Um, I, you know, these are, like, the latchkey kid years. Um, and I would say at that stage, I was reading pretty much everything in the house. Um, so I tended, I like to read the same books over and over, so I was still, still reading Little House, still reading American Girl. Um, but as I developed as a reader, I started, I, I would just read anything available. So, um, I read Daniel Steele. <laughs> My mom was like, oh, you should read these. They always have a powerful woman in them. How old were you when she was giving you Daniel Steele? <laughs> Which is true. What was that? What was that like reading Daniel Steele? Um, what is a typical Daniel Steele novel for someone who hasn't read it? And then what was it like for you reading them? I mean, so they're relatively formulaic in which you are introduced, at least in the ones that I'm most familiar with, you're introduced to a woman who is in some ways, it's, they're like sort of like American Girl doll books in this, but like uh, you're introduced to a woman who is pushing back against what society expects of her. She's somehow like unconventional. Um, she meets a man who gets that something bad happens or something bad might happen before that, but then she, you know, through love and her own uh, capacities or special qualities is able to, like, triumph over that. And stay with the man. Hopefully, or extend, like, end up extremely rich. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which uh, has its appeal. Sure. Yeah. So did you like reading those books, or what? how did that sort of, like, hit you at 12 years old? I liked the ones that were historical fiction, 
So it was another, like, my favorite one is Jewels, which is set in World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, About a, you know, a girl who butts up in the 20s. She butts up against convention and gets divorced and gets sent to, like, Europe to... She's basically banished from her family. And then during the war, she falls in love with some man and somehow they make it through the war but he's like way older than her and super rich and British and they establish a jewel store of course like really rich and, but he dies at some point they always, they always die but then she has all this money and she's like set and then she's she has fine. the memories of their love oh. but it's a great way to learn more about World War II yeah through Daniel Steele yeah like because I would have never known about the occupation of France Thank you, Danielle Steele. Right? And, like, Letters from Vietnam is about, I think it's, like, a photojournalist. Oh, I've not read that. Yeah. That's a, that was, like, how I learned about Vietnam. I certainly wasn't interested in reading, like, Tom Clancy around the house, but, like, that was a way I could get into it. Hmm. And did you ever see um, Lifetime for a period of time had a dynasty of movies inspired by Danielle Steele books? Whoa. So yeah. I've never read a Danielle Steele book, but I have seen many a Lifetime movie based on the works of Danielle Steele. So I don't think I have, and this speaks back to like my, my own personal rigidity. I was Because of my early exposure to the Little House books and finding the Little House show to be abhorrent. <gasps> You're um, not a fan of the show. No. So that set me on a path where I would never, I just believed you should not watch the show. Okay. So, so watch the, the show. Let me things. pause on that. Yeah. What about the TV show Little House on the Prairie? Is it the seventies haircuts? Is it Melissa Gilbert? Like what's going on that drives you from the show? I think that it, I think what I liked about the books was in part like the stoic kind of clean simplicity of the illustration and yeah to have it like 70s up didn't really fit and I never it just never quite matched what it was in my mind so I would just kind of shut it yeah. up do you think it's that the central issue is that it can't compete with your imagination. Whatever the portrayal is on TV or a film adaptation, it never competes with what you've imagined. Yeah, and I would say I can be a little bit like uh, canonical about like, so if it it's, if it deviates from the book in any way, like how dare they? Because <laughs> the book was obviously better. Um, so this is. That's probably Do you have a hard time with that in other genres? Like, I'm wondering, we were talking off air um, about music, and if you hear an album that you love, like an album by Hole or something, and then you go see Hole in concert, and it doesn't sound exactly like the album, does that bother you? No, not as much as it used to. I think it would have when I was, like, when I was younger, maybe it would have bothered me a little bit, but now I kind of... You know, over it. You get it. <laughs> right, and, like, I watched The Handmaid's Tale show, and your so, thoughts on that are? Well, it's not like the book. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, that kind of bummed me out. I thought it started well, but it was because in order to sustain a show, they had to kind of create elements of that world that didn't exist in the book. Mm-hmm. I was really frustrated with it. I also think it's a really 1980s story. And it's for all of the parallels that people want to draw. It's so much about the '80s that I don't. I don't even know if we should try mm. to try and make it contemporary. So in that way, I was relieved that the show kind of expanded the world so much that it was like this is actually a completely different text, mm. which that made it very palatable. Okay. Yeah, which, that makes sense. You know, for something like Game of Thrones, like that was one where I've kind of read the books after I watched a season of the show. So that was one that I took kind of contemporaneously. Okay. And now the show is beyond the books. Right. And so it's like, where does one stop and the other one begin? Yeah. Hmm. So we're leaving off with Danielle Steele around 12. What comes next for you? Um, so it's still in those years, like reading whatever's in the house. So like my brother was four years older than me. So reading his the, like classics that they were reading in high school, I picked those up sooner, I think probably because of that. 
And also, like, my mom was in school, and so, like, thumbing through her nursing textbooks hmm. or, like, her anatomy CD-ROMs, which we can't really underestimate the power of CD-ROMs for me. Like, I read Encarta. Really? <laughs> yeah. We haven't talked about Encarta on this show. Oh, my gosh. So, for younger listeners, what is Encarta? Right. You have to explain this. Uh, Encarta was a Microsoft... Uh, CD-ROM, which is a CD that you put into the computer, and then it opens up this whole program to you that is an encyclopedia, which we would now be like Wikipedia. Wikipedia. But in Carter, I would say the thing that made it different was um, many of the articles, as far as I'm aware, were written by actual experts. So I had like I had a faculty member. Um, from when I was at Temple, who on his CV had that he had like written an article for Encarta, and I kind of lost my mind. So Whoa! Like, oh my gosh, Encarta, local so celebrity. Cool. Yeah. Did you say that to him or just no? Say, hey, um, I heard you wrote for Encarta. Like, yeah, that was another you know kind of because the internet was somewhat emergent yeah. during that time when I would have been kind of an adolescent, and so that was an easy way to learn more about pioneers or whatever struck my fancy things about religion um where did you grow up religious or were you just reading about religion as sort of like a a thing you were interested in but didn't have experience with yeah my dad's family is somewhat religious my mom's family in washington where i was growing up was not and so yeah it was just more about like a way of exploring a different side of the world that that Mm -hmm. was really easy to do through Encarta, especially because it always, like, suggested more reading, so you could kind of keep clicking through and just, like, learn about all these different things. Hmm. Um, so that was a totally normal part of after school, would have done kind of these nonfiction kind of things, and the newspaper. I mean, I became a, a big newspaper reader probably in, like, middle school. Did you read it every day? Yes. What newspaper was your newspaper of choice? Um, so it was the Tacoma News Tribune, and I'd say that was probably the only newspaper that existed to me. I don't think I was really aware of other newspapers, mm. um, but that was our local our local paper. It was a lot fatter than it is now. Um, but then, you know, like in Carta, then you can educate yourself about politics or sports or local politics. <laughs> Um, or culture or whatever is going on. And so that was, for me, like a major way of finding out about the world outside of our house or our neighborhood. Yeah. Hmm. And kind of help you take the temperature of what's the political life of this place that I live. And when you're reading the newspaper, did you feel it made you feel a kinship to where you were from or where you were living at the time? Or did you feel like I fit in some ways, but I don't in others. Like, did it help you figure out who you were in some way? I mean, I think eventually. um, Again, because it's like in college, I had a professor assign us to get a New York Times subscription. And that was, I think, probably a bigger deal. You know, in terms of reading the local paper as an adolescent, helped me, I think, to understand my local college, my local culture and the way things kind of worked in my community. Reading the New York Times was like, oh my God, there's a world outside of Western Washington that nobody has told me about that was, you know, even though I had traveled some, was just like a bomb in my life. I mean, because that was when I realized that I had to like start studying the New York Times in order to figure out like, how to have any kind of upward mobility as like so I read that as like a cultural manual hmm. basically or can you say more about that I mean why what drove that desire to be upwardly mobile like when did you have the consciousness that you were somewhere and wanted to go somewhere else and that the New York Times could play a role in that process um I would say that that was definitely a function of transferring from community college to uh a four-year college. And so I had gone to community college just because of kind of financial exigencies in our family. Um, Was a scholarship kid. And so when I transferred, um, feeling like in some ways that kind of, 
you know, like community college for me was kind of like a working class cocoon. Like it was just like, oh, everybody here is kind of like me in some way. Um, and so going to a four-year school became like introduced to people who were not from my community and, you know, it was a more regional campus, but it really kind of coupled with the New York Times gave me a sense that, like I had to get out of there. That there was just some kind of world that I needed to go find. Hmm. So, what parts of like do you remember any like stories in the New York Times that you write and were like, whoa, or like subjects you read about that just blew your mind, or you felt yourself your curiosity cultivated by it? I think like the Styles page, which my friend Jackie Shine wrote a great history of the Styles section. Hmm. Which is great. Um, but, yeah, the style section, I think, was really important for teaching me, like, what middle class or upper middle class culture is. I don't think I really understood, like, you know, things with, like, food and fashion and the kind of weird um, social problems that are introduced in the style section either through like advice columns or uh, through reading the like engagement marriage announcements where you can kind of see people's life trajectories and like how they become successful it's kind of a bobos in paradise kind of thing but it was the New York Times was huge for me in terms of seeing myself as part of a more National culture, which in Washington State you're so far from that. Um, you know, there's not the biggest city nearby is Portland, mm. which is pretty similar to what you'll find in Seattle. Don't tell people from Portland that. You get a lot of angry letters. But I think it connected me to, to East Coast mm. culture in a way that I wouldn't have accessed in the same way. Mm. So you're in high school at this point, like to go back, you're in high school. Are you thinking about in your reading life what you want to do professionally with your life? Are you thinking anything about like career-wise or even, you know, like high school is such a weird time when you're trying to start figuring yourself out. Like are books playing any role in that process? You know what I read? I haven't thought about this at all, but um, Bridget Jones' Diary. <laughs> so, like, there's the chiclet element again, it's coming out. This would have been around like 2000, I guess. Um, so, that was that book, I think, in terms of like seeing a working, a working woman as a kind of full human being, um, you know, didn't kind of set me like, oh, I, I need to go be like her necessarily, but again, like, normalizes certain trajectories I think that you could go be a professional woman in a city and then it would be normal to live in a different town from your parents like those are all kind of pieces of that story Mm. Um, aside from like the comedy and the weed stuff and whatever um, I think the idea that you could be like a fully fleshed out human being as a woman you know is kind of maybe a, a trope you might see in some of my reading yeah, yeah. And are you using the books like Bridget Jones' Diary or whatever in that period? Are you connecting with friends about any of this stuff? Or is reading really like a solitary act for you? Oh, no, that was definitely when I started making people read other things that I was reading. So, like, that copy <laughs> of Bridget Jones was passed around my friends. I think at some point everybody had to read The Handmaid's Tale. There have been other books that I, like, have kind of required people in my circle to read. Hmm. Um, Are there things that people can only learn about you by reading a book that's important to you? Probably, yeah. I think to a certain degree, which is kind of funny because my partner doesn't read any of my books. Our book collections are like uh, opposite poles. But um, certainly among female friends and like my sister-in-law, I would definitely count among them like have shared books that are special to me with other people and then we've like talked about it and it becomes kind of part of our relationship. Hmm. Can you think of an example? Um, So when I was finishing college, my undergrad advisor uh, recommended Behind the Scenes at the Museum by Kate Atkinson as kind of a great historical uh, woman-centered story 
and that was a book that just blew my mind and that I had to share with other people. And that might actually be the first one that I actually bought for other people and gave them mm-hmm. as a gift, um, which I think I, I've given that book to at least three or four people. Why do you think that book is so important to you? I think because I think that that book was really kind of the beginning of starting to enjoy stories that were about how complicated families are, but also because um, it's so postmodern, it like moves in between these different historical periods. So you get the family in World War II, and you get them in the fifties, and you get them at all these different moments. You get them in the present, trying to deal with this like genealogical baggage that they have, these kind of intergenerational conflicts. Um, And so that was, I think, probably the the first book I read that really hooked me into those kind of stories, which are something that I've kind of continued to read about since then. Hmm. Do you ever, like, feel weird giving a book that's about complicated family stuff to a family member and then being like, I'm not saying this is about our family, but I'm also saying not saying this isn't about our family? No, I mean, I think, to me, like, books sort of like manuals for dealing with other people like uh, another kind of big book for me in college was like Anna Karenina mm-hmm. and it was a book that like I read because it was a classic and I thought I should be reading classics in order to be like a well-rounded person and then realized that actually it's like a really good way to understand divorce and relationships and I never like handed anybody else a copy of that book but it was definitely like oh, I can actually understand choices that people around me have made as legitimate choices that are valid in a way that I don't think I had ever seen before. And it was so much of it was because of the humanity of that character. Hmm. Um, but usually it's like I try to be pretty upfront with like, yeah, you know, families are messed up. It's kind of cathartic to read read these books. I just read The Middle Steens by Jamie Attenberg. Hmm. And that is a family, that story, like, the characters have all kinds of uh, baggage around, like, obesity, and the kind of toll it's taken on their families, and that was one that I read, and was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm reading a story about um, the ways in which people's bodies kind of impact families. That was just revolutionary to me. Um, Because you don't have any experience with that, or because you just hadn't thought of it that way before? Oh, because it was so resonant. Because it was like people and families have these conversations, and yet to kind of see it laid bare, especially, you know, I think something that kind of ties books like Behind the Scenes of the Museum and uh, the Middle Scenes together is that they're both told from multiple perspectives. And so I love the idea that you can get kind of these eyes on the ground from different people who are going to tell you the different angles of what it's like to experience this particular trauma or issue in a family. Yeah. So that's, there's another book I read that that was just that way too, The The Wands Versus the World by Jay Chang. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very similar book. And and I'm just, I'm so here for it. (laughs) What about it? Well, because I think all of those books have a humor to them, mm-hmm. like in terms of how people in context deal with problems. That one deals with the fallout of like the recession um, and how a family kind of responds to their fall from wealth. Um, and I, just, I love seeing families like collaborating to come up with solutions to problems or working through it or not working through it and kind of what the consequences are. Hmm. Do you ever think that, you know, something that we've talked on with different people on this show is the idea that you find books or that books find you at different moments in your life? And not necessarily just with family issues, but your life in general. Do you think there have been moments when certain books have come into your life unexpectedly at a time that it's been helpful in a, like, weird way? Or or that you just find books yourself when you need them? No, I mean, you know, there's... uh... I would say that the books that have been most pivotal to me have been books that are recommended by other people Hmm. and people that I think understood that they had some kind of value to them and that they might to me. And I would say those have been the ones that have generally been the most resonant, Um, which is kind of funny because I feel like the way that the recommendations happen now for me is through Twitter. Hmm. And so, so much, you know, or Facebook just being like, hey, I need stuff to read. What should I be reading right now? And then getting recommendations that way. 
Fair enough. Mm-hmm. So you, any else, any other books from high school that I may have missed before I move on to your college years? No, I think that's about it. I did a lot of sports and band and stuff, so I maybe wasn't <laughs> reading quite as much. What instrument did you play? I played the tuba and the bass trombone. Wow. Because uh, I was kind of a, the kind of kid that would do anything, and so I wasn't very good at the saxophone. So I was like, well, would you like to learn how to play the tuba? We really need a tuba player. <laughs> so that kept me busy. Wow. I've never had a tuba player on this show before, so... It's a, it's a rare gift. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not that good. No. Uh, so you go to community college. Are you in community college thinking about what you want to study, or are you just sort of like doing gen eds at that point? I mean, so I thought I was just doing gen eds, but I was really lucky um, that I had a, a scholarship there that put me in contact with a great mentor on campus who was... I think she would have been like the liberal arts dean. And so I would go talk about her. We were on a quarter system, so every like eight weeks I was going to talk to her about what I wanted to study for next quarter. And she was the one that realized like that I was really into the history classes I was taking. Um, so she was just like, take all the history classes you want. Take as many history classes as possible. Hmm. Take other ha- classes that have a history component. Um, so I would get really excited about the week that we spent learning about the history of anthropology or whatever. Um, but that, that was really foundational for me in going on to be um, a history major with somebody telling me that like if you like history, you should just keep studying it. Hmm. Which I don't know that people tell that to students anymore. I don't think, I mean, I had somebody who did that for me too, and I wonder if that's happening anymore now that the liberal arts are so under attack in a a lot of ways because you know stem culture is really prominent right now and Mm -hmm. but yeah I didn't I I didn't maybe it was because my brother was an English major I just didn't necessarily connect college to job training Mm -hmm. I think in the way that maybe might be more common now um it was just like oh you should go to college so I did, and then I was like, oh, you should just keep studying history. Okay, so I will. <laughs> and then when did you make the leap to be a historian? Um, that was, I think, uh, part of a kind of full-court press in my program at the, the four-year school I went to, uh, Pacific Lutheran University. I think I was thriving in my classes and engaging in a particular way in which there must have been like a meeting or something in which people said, like, we have to we should encourage you to go to graduate school. Because mm-hmm. I met individually with faculty who were like, no, you're doing really well, you should go to graduate school. And that had never occurred to me at all. Um, but I would say just through, you know, taking the class on historiography, like, blew my mind. And that, that would probably be the moment when I really came to love the method um, mm-hmm. of the profession. And that's through reading, too. I mean... Yeah, I was going to say, what books were really important to your formation as a historian, even before you started training, but just when you were settling on that choice? Yeah, I mean, there was a really bone-dry book by Georg Iggers. Great name. Yeah, that was just like, these are the different kind of turns in historiography. It was super dry. Loved it. Um, and then, like, Silencing the Past by Michelle Rolf Trio, which is very post-colonial, um, and deals with all the ways in which silences get embedded in archives. Um, that was just gripping to me. It was so exciting to read something like that when people were actually talking about doing history. And what was so exciting to you? Was it the thought that you would want to do this? Or, like, were you thinking about different histories you wanted to study? Like, what was going on? I think it just made sense. It just was, like, coming home. It's hard to really explain it more than that because it was so straightforward. of just like, oh, yeah, this is, this is what we would do and how we might do it. Um, and I never, I don't think until I did a senior seminar that I actually got into really doing my own research um, that it felt like something plausible as a path. I never really set out to be a professor. I just kind of wanted to keep doing history, and so I kept coming back to it. Yeah. Hmm. 
So did you go to grad school immediately after you finished your undergrad? No, I took a year off um, and went, I worked as a receptionist in Seattle. How was that? It was um, mind-numbing. It was extremely boring, and I was really frustrated all year because people assume that when you're the receptionist, you're not very smart. And um, they would, like, comment on stuff that I was reading in, like, the break room at lunch. And yeah, so, like, like, what are you reading in that year? I just kept reading books from college because I was so desperate. Um, I was definitely reading... I was reading um, stuff on religion because I thought I was going to go more on, like, a religious studies track. Hmm. And so I was reading, like, uh, what is that book? Now had a book about, like, uh, people being spiritual but not religious. Hmm. And so I remember reading that and somebody in the break room commented on it. It was like, do you think I'm stupid? Like, I, I know how to read. And, like, that was the year I, I read War and Peace. But wow. I, didn't, I don't really like reading about war, and so I skipped a lot of the war parts. That feels like a big part of the book. <laughs> it's like a huge part of the book, so I didn't really read War and Peace. Um, you just read the peace parts? Yeah, that was not so good. I studied for the GRE, but it was like some anything you can do to just keep your brain alive while you're taking like commuting an hour on the bus either way I mean that feels like the most desperate reading when your life is in a situation where you're confronted with something that's mundane and boring and not feeding you intellectually if you're someone who needs to be fed intellectually all the time no and I was definitely like compulsively because I was sitting in front of the computer just like answering phones reading the New York Times and that was like reading blogs like, that was around the time, like, Jezebel would have come out. Mm-hmm. And so I was just, like, any connection that I could get to the outside world. Because we basically worked in a windowless closet. So it was, like, oh my God. trying to, yeah, <laughs> trying to just, like, read anything to get through the day was huge for me. And then, like, engaging with the news because you have nothing else to do. So this sounds like a desperate year. Yeah, it was. I mean, I applied, I was in that job for like two months before I started sending out grad school applications because I was like, this is not something I can keep doing. Term. Yeah. So and I ended up in grad school fairly quickly. Yeah. So were you, you mentioned your brother, like he's popped up throughout the interview and are you, I imagine you're close to him. Like, do you still read things like in that year and then since then? Are you still reading things that he has read and recommended to you or do you read things together like is that a part of your relationship at all not so much i mean i send him stuff but like he has three kids so yeah he only has some, he has some demands food. yeah yeah but it's always very well meaning <laughs> um so when you go to grad school you went to temple uh what's that like what's your reading life like is it dominated by what you're reading for school. Yeah, I mean, so I, I went to the University of Utah first for my master's. Oh, okay. Um, and there I really started to read more um, more contemporary stuff. And by contemporary, at that time, I was reading, like, John Updike, or, like, all of John Updike. Because I think I just was getting really into mid-century history. Um, what did you like about John Updike? Again, it's like that, you know, people living in a historical moment, I think. So I, I really liked the um, the rabbit books because in each of those you see this character kind of dealing with the different kind of fallouts of, you know, the 1950s, the turmoil of the late 60s, the kind of decadence of being middle-aged in the 80s. Um, that was really appealing to me. Um, I would say the biggest shift in my like personal, not work-related reading from Utah to Temple was I started reading much more proactively reading works by women. Hmm. Um, and maybe that's just a, from being in grad school for enough years where you get tired of reading books by men for work hmm. um, that I had like a dedicated year where I was like, I'm only going to read books by women. I'm only going to listen to music by women. Wow. Um, and so that what was, inspired that choice? Was it just a general malaise with reading mostly men-centered stuff? Yeah, and I think I think just kind of realizing 
I'm sure it must have been something I read on the internet where somebody suggested it, but... What was that year like? Like, I want to know what you were reading, what you were listening to. It was great. Um, that was the year I started listening to Slater Kinney. Um, that, I read The Color Purple. I, like, I started reading all these books that was like, why haven't I read this? I, I you know, I've read, like, so many classics um, by men, but had never actually got into the classics by women, so that's the one that sticks out the most. Um, my advisor, Heather Thompson, was writing Blood in the Water, and I think... Which um, just won the Pulitzer Prize. Prize. Right, and so she was writing that while she was advising me, and one of the things that she recommended to me was to read things that were written for a much wider audience. So not reading, um, you know, intellectual, like, contemporary fiction, but reading, like, paperbacks. Um, both as a way to learn how to write for a wider audience, um, but also to give your mind a break from the kind of trauma that you're writing about when you're writing, in my case, a history of jails. Um, so, like, uh, to take a break, I read, like, all of the Game of Thrones books, which I think are the only books I've ever read with my partner because um, we were like passing them back and forth um, and then the year I was writing my dissertation I read the Outlander books oh boy yeah tell me about that it was a journey um, so the problem with those books is they get more poorly written as you go on because I think she's just kind of feeding the cash cow yeah um but it was still, it was really good for me to just have to, to read something that wasn't, it was still historical-ish, but wasn't, like, work. And I would say that I became much more proactive, particularly in the dissertation writing stage, about reading for pleasure. Um, Do you think there's anything that you picked up consciously or not from reading historical fiction or works that are meant for the public that you've incorporated into your own writing, even academic writing? I mean, I think um, trying to like slow myself down and actually describe things um, rather than like analysis, analysis, analysis. Yeah, like having a narrative in what you're writing. Yeah, but I would say that like it does make writing in sections more natural because like that's pretty common. In books that they'll have subsections within the chapters, mm-hmm. I would say, or different, you know, little scenes, and so that's that becomes more natural in the writing. I hope. I mean, I'm struck too by what you're saying that you read Game of Thrones to escape the trauma that you were writing about, but those are pretty violent books. Yeah, my capacity for violence has changed a lot. Like I've definitely gotten from like almost crying in the archive to being somewhat known to violence and those probably actually helped a little bit. I'm wondering if we can back up and talk about that because I'm yeah. actually really interested in that. So yeah. maybe you can talk about what you study and also what kinds of things, what constitutes your archive and then what is it like to be reading in your archive and to have these emotional responses? Yeah, so I write about um, my research is specifically on Cook County Jail in the post-war period and kind of jailing more broadly in American history um, in a way that's distinct from how we write about prisons, which are, you know, the institutions where people who are sentenced for crimes uh, are put. Uh, I'm much more interested in people who are presumed innocent or awaiting trial. Um, So in order to uncover that story um, is quite a bit of reading against the grain because there's not, it's not like you just go down to the city archives and look through the jail papers uh, because those don't exist because they throw everything away. Um, So you have to go to the ACLU papers and read about the lawsuits that they were filing um, or going to the Chicago History Museum and reading about this one sociologist who was requesting a lot of documents from the jail and kind of following what was happening in the jail during the 70s. Um, So through that, you kind of get multiple perspectives from wardens, policymakers, uh, social movement activists like the League of Women Voters, um, prisoners, 
you kind of get these many different perspectives that are brought to bear on this institution. Mm-hmm. Um, so as far as like the the emotional responses, um, though the initial research was tough because you know you go th- initially in my process I start with newspapers and did several months of newspaper research to kind of figure out maybe the broader contours of the story and what some of the main events might have been. But then you go in the archive and you realize that this one thing that there were two stories about is actually a major event when a teenager was set on fire in the jail. And so you spend your morning in the archive reading about the fallout of this investigation by this grand jury into what was going on in the jail when he was murdered. And so it's not like in the later stages of the project when you've already kind of figured out all of the bad things that can happen in a jail, which are many. Um, And so you're kind of constantly being blindsided by that. Um, So reading like stuff that's just pure fantasy when you're coming out of the archives at the end of the day would be like, is really essential. Yeah. Um, and that's probably when I started watching way more television. That's <laughs> personally my personal entertainment. Yeah. Um, just to like be outside of that vein. Of even the act of reading. Yeah, it, it's definitely it's hard, and I would say I go through phases where I'm more detached from it when I just have to like put my head down and do the work. Um, but definitely, I did a, a research project this last spring on jail suicide, mm-hmm. and that was a pretty terrible paper to write, um, because the kind of accounts that come from that um, are largely through the eyes of like social workers, was part of the archive that I was dealing with, and just horrible, horrible things happening to people, um, which is not something I necessarily understood, I think, when I started that project of like, this is there are going to be some days when you just really like have no faith in humanity. Um, but you know, that's part of the, part of the work, I guess. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's tough. That's very tough. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And which, you know, it's funny cause we didn't necessarily I think know to have those conversations when I was first starting, but now as more people are studying these topics around crime and incarceration and policing, um, I think we've started to have conversations more about the ways in which trauma like affects our work and the fact that we're dealing with uh, people who have experienced trauma kind of from all all of the stakeholders. Well, and I'm wondering too if it's part of the conversation that you need to raise awareness around these issues through writing, through your published research, and yet does it factor in at all that you have to recount some of these very traumatic events in your writing and thinking about like someone that you're trying to raise awareness with as a reader is it traumatic for them to then be reading about this stuff like is there a line where somebody's reading a piece and it gets to be like too much and they can't take it how do you find the right amount to include that someone can bear yeah I mean and to not be gratuitous right exactly um and in that you know taking kind of uh, following the lead of like human rights investigations, you know, in, like Guatemala or South Africa, I think it's really useful to read that kind of reporting where um, people have a kind of moral obligation to make an accounting, while not kind of playing it for drama or for politics, but just for the fact that these are like real things that people experienced. Um, so hopefully you're not re-traumatizing people, but at the same time, one of the biggest motivations for me to write this book is the fact that every time I give a talk in Chicago, people come up to me and, and really just affirm the need for a, that place to understand this institution that's so much a part of their city. Um, and so that, to me, has always kind of kept me going. It's like, Chicago needs its book. Like... The temptation is to write about, you know, other jails or other places, but the reality is, like, we have to reckon with this one place first, um, which is exciting and gives me hope that, you know, some amount of knowledge 
could be brought to bear on that institution, maybe. Mm. I mean, any historical consciousness would be better than none. none. Yeah. Mm. So are you still in your reading life now, kind of reading for fun in a way that can offer an escape from your research? Yeah, I'm definitely... Um, have been reading I, I've gotten to this point where being in my early 30s I've realized that a lot of authors are about my age and so it's been really fun I've been kind of just getting into contemporary women's fiction um, to kind of find those stories because you can, I think you can kind of find your own life in, the, in those kinds of writers um, so that's been really just a joy yeah well, maybe by way of closing, maybe tell us what books we should be reading. Um, I really liked All Grown Up by uh, Jeannie Attenberg. Um, as I said before, The Middle Steens by her also is very good. Um, Rachel Cusk, her outline series yep. is amazing. Um, Asian women are writing amazing things. Uh, Kathy Chung's Forgotten Country, Celeste Ng's uh, Everything I Never Told You, uh, I would say, have been books that have been really, you know, are part of this theme of, like, wrenching family stories. Uh, but it's good, good to read about. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sitting down with me and being on the show. Thanks. I'd like to thank our guest, Melanie, for sharing her story with us. I'd also like to thank our technical director, Taylor, for all her help. You can follow us on Instagram, at ChaptersPod. There you'll find shelfies submitted by our guests. You can find us on Twitter, at ChaptersPod. You can find me, at MaryMahoney123, and Taylor, at MJTThePhD. Visit our website, www.chapterspod.com, if you'd like to share your story on chapters. You can also find links to every book mentioned on this and every episode on our website. If you enjoy our show, please rate and review us in the iTunes store. It really helps listeners find our show. Thanks for listening.